This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. there. Thank you so much for downloading another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Now, many of you probably listened to our field check episodes that we did in between the last season of this podcast and this season. This question and answer format turned out to be pretty popular, and we actually might be bringing you more of those in the future. In the meantime, though, questions are still coming in, which is great. And one in particular is such a good question that we decided to make a full Soil Sense episode out of the topic. Here's the question that inspired this episode. It comes from Brad Farrell. What can I do to correct low pH and no-till systems in a corn-soybean rotation? Here in Southeast South Dakota, we've got a lot of low pH areas and fields, and it just is a pretty big challenge to get them corrected. Thank you to Brad for bringing up such an important and often overlooked topic of managing pH. Today on the show, we're able to bring both a farmer perspective and the research extension perspective on addressing this challenge. Joining me is fourth-generation farmer and rancher from southwest North Dakota, Nathan Thomas. Nathan works alongside his parents and his brother-in-law in a very diversified farming operation that also focuses extensively on integrating their cow-calf operation into their crops. Along with Nathan, I'm joined by Ryan Beto. Ryan is an NDSU Extension Cropping Systems Specialist based out of the Dickinson Research Extension Center. He's been there since completing his master's program at NDSU in 2015. Ryan and Nathan have both collaborated on a few projects, including addressing problems with acidic or low pH soils. To start our conversation, Nathan takes us back to when he first started realizing they had to do something about their pH levels. You know, I came back in 2008. And uh, when we came into the operation, we kind of wanted to add to the farming programs that my dad was already doing. Like we started to diversifying the rotation and we started to incorporate the cattle into cover crops and uh, more winter grazing as well. And then one thing that we really wanted to look into that just makes sense for all three of us was a uh, variable rate. We're not like the Red River Valley where it's flat. We got a lot of hills and a lot of variances in our fields. I mean, you could have the same soil index on a field, if it's on a hill or on a draw, you're gonna have different yield because that draw is gonna hold more moisture. So we wanted to start applying our rates accordingly to those zones. We bought a program that could make our own soil sample maps and prescription maps so we could start soil sampling. And my dad, he was doing a composite test on one test throughout the whole field on about a quarter of his acre. So then we shifted into trying to do every acre every year in zone sampling. And in the meantime of doing all that, we started going to like soil clinics and talking to extension office, to NRCS, because we wanted to learn how to actually read a soil sample. Like we get the test back, we always looked at like two nutrients and that was it. And one of the things that we were advised to look at was pH. And we we're like, okay, what's, what's pH? What's that have to do with anything? So when we started to look at it, we started to realize that our pH varied just as much as our soils. I mean, we could have four pH as, uh, as low as four and as high as seven and a half, and that could be even in the same field. And that was probably 
uh, around 2009, 10, when we started to really do that. So since at least 2010, we've known that pH has been an issue and we're slowly trying to figure out how to, how to correct it. So what's the root cause of these pH issues? I mean, before we get into how to manage the problem, Ryan helps us better understand what's leading to lower pH in the first place. I'm definitely not a soil scientist. I, I definitely deal with the crops more often. But from what I understand, there's differences in the soil type. And there's some of these soils are just more naturally acidic. And when I first came out here, some people said, yeah, there's going to be some acidity, but it's just in small spots here and there. But then we started to notice fairly large areas. And what's really happening is in no-till, you know, when you're putting that nitrogen fertilizer down, it's going in the same spot year after year. And nitrogen can acidify the soil, so it releases hydrogen ions when it changes forms uh, into a form of nitrogen that the plant can use, right? So pH is, you know, the amount of hydrogen. So those hydrogen ions accumulate in that topsoil. So we're really seeing high amounts of pH where that nitrogen is being put every year. You know, the higher amount of nitrogen the quicker it's going to happen, especially, you know, maybe edges of the field where they are turning around, maybe accidentally putting on twice the amount of nitrogen. That's where you're really seeing the bad spots. But you can see anything from an entire field having this issue to maybe a couple acres around the edges. So a lot of it has to do with the type of clay that we have. And Dave Franzen has a really good map showing, you know, parts of the state that have kaolinite type clays. And uh, the areas that this is the issue pretty much goes from down by Mott in New England all the way up north of Minot. So this whole western part of the state potentially has this issue. The reason we haven't really picked it up is because it's in those top couple inches. When people soil sample, they're taking a 12-inch sample, something like that, right? You're kind of diluting that pH a bit because, you know, maybe the top two inches is a pH of four and a half. The next couple inches is, you know, mid fives, and then below that you're in the sixes. So it's really has to do with nitrogen and the placement of that nitrogen. In a lot of cases, the lower pH will hurt the productivity of the field, but waiting for a drop in yield is not the right time to start checking for areas with low pH. Well, I guess I got one field I can use as an example. This field has been in our farms since 1907 and we started grain farming probably in the late 60s early 70s and on this field it was uh wheat after wheat after wheat for a long time and we would put what i would consider too high of rates of nitrogen every year even though they were soil sampling and then we would uh let the volunteer wheat grow and fall graze it if we could and then we would also spread manure on a portion of that field like every year. So I think those were the factors of why the pH was low. But on the flip side, even though that we incorporated the cattle and the manure, it's one of our highest organic matter fields. So it's our lowest pH, but probably one of our highest yielding fields. So what we wanted to do to correct the pH was just to make the field better than it already was. Like I said, it was one of our highest yielding fields. In 2015, we put wheat on that field and uh, we fertilized for an average wheat crop. We had great growing conditions. We had uh, real good moisture and everything. And we ended up beating our yield by like 20, 30%. And we kind of like scratched our heads, like where did this yield come from? We came to the conclusion from talking to a lot of other experts, I guess, 
was that organic matter is what was helping us aid in the yield. So one of the very first things that we did to combat the pH was find out what caused it. Well, this was one of the factors I just previously said. We started figuring in the organic matter into our fertility. Like whatever crop we were raising or going to be, we just made a simple math equation of if it's going to be wheat, we'll give ourselves this much. If it's going to be corn, this much, and so on. Well, then now we're not putting as much nitrogen down. So we don't, in theory, hurt the pH even worse, if that makes sense. We've only been doing that for probably about four years now, so I haven't really noticed any difference. I mean, that field that I was talking about, you know, our pH in our red zones, our foreground, is anywhere from like 4 to 4.2, and our organic matter is probably 2.7 to like 3. And then in our green zones, our best zones, it's probably around 4.7 to 5.2 pH, and it's probably around 3.5 to like a little over 4 organic matter. But I haven't really noticed any difference in the pH by figuring in the organic matter into the prescriptions. The only thing I noticed is it's kind of saving on the checkbook. I can use that money that I might have put into nitrogen into a different, you know, needs more phosphorus or potash or, or whatever. That's helped with that so far. And then um, another thing that we started to do too for the past probably about three or four years on our row crop acres, and this year we did it on our small grains as well is we started to use humic acids. And I know there's not a lot of research on humic acids out there other than like my own research that I've done. And the only thing that we really noticed with them is that they would increase the root structure. Like it would make the roots more fibrous or it would make them tap down longer or farther. So our theory of using them was if we can grow a root bigger and faster, we can grow out of that low pH zone that Ryan was talking about and get down to that subsoil that has a better pH where we can absorb more nutrients and get better uh, water filtration. Hmm. But if low pH doesn't always negatively impact yield, should we always be concerned about it? Ryan says answering that starts with understanding why low pH is really an issue. So low pH impacts nutrients. Not only does it impact those important nutrients that we want, but also the chemistry in the soil that we don't want, right? So why we're seeing yield loss in these low pH areas where the pH drops below five and a half, it's because aluminum, which is in all the soil, goes from a form where it's not available to the plant to becoming soluble. So the plant starts taking up aluminum and you get aluminum toxicity. Some species of, of crops are tolerant or have some form of tolerance to aluminum toxicity. Uh, and within those species, there's differences in varieties as well. Along with aluminum toxicity, you can also get manganese toxicity. When that pH changes, that manganese becomes too available and the plant takes up too much of it. And with something like canola, you can see some really bad manganese toxicity symptoms. Uh, along with that, that pH also impacts your chemistry. So certain chemicals might not break down as quickly, which could you know, have effects you know, later in your cropping system. So it's really important to kind of think about the whole system. You want to make sure that you're managing that pH. And the best way to do that is with lime application. But there are some kind of Band-Aid treatments. As Nathan mentioned, humic acid, which I definitely am trying to look more into. From talking to different agronomists and, and producers, you know, there's definitely some stuff that we need to keep looking into. And I definitely don't want to reinvent the wheel. We're not the only ones facing this issue. 
Montana's done some great work as well as Oklahoma, Kansas. You know, we're not the only ones with pH issue. The problem is we don't have a good source of lime. And then you add a no-till on top of that, you can't work that lime in. So uh, we've been doing some work looking at surface applied lime, looking at varietal differences. So, you know, if they're seeing good yields, maybe they have a crop out there that, you know, can handle that aluminum toxicity. But you just need to make sure that you're able to have some diversity in your rotation. What if you have something that's extremely susceptible? A lot of your legumes are going to see issues not only from the you know, shortened root structure from that aluminum toxicity, but also bacteria don't really like acidic environments too much either. And uh, what's important for legumes that rise of bacteria, right? So uh, it's definitely a, a complex issue because it not only impacts the crop, but how other things interact with that crop in the soil. We have a lot of other fields that pH are a negative, in fact, like we impact where we know yield is getting affected. Or like Ryan was even talking about chemical tie-up in 2017, you know, we had worst drought ever. And we uh, had one field that we know has low pH. We had corn on it. And then the following year, we put sunflowers on it. And when those sunflowers come up, they were just, in, in, in 18, this was, it was like super spotty, like what's going on here? So we went out and scouted, dug around. It's not cut worms. It's, it's something else. Well, it was chemical tie-up. We had whatever we sprayed in that corn tied up and it was killing our sunflowers. I think, in my opinion, because of the, the pH, if we would have had a you know, better pH, that chemical would have broke down in the soil. Or if we would have had adequate amount of moisture in 17 as well, you know, those two things kind of played into that. And then, you know, Ryan was talking about lime. You know, when we first found out about this pH thing, we started to look into lime right away. And we found three available sources that we could use, and they all have positives and negatives, plus and minuses. And one is uh, pellet lime. That is kind of like a fertilizer. You know, you can mix it with fertilizer. And, and I'm kind of in the infant stage of working with that. And our operation, we're using pellet lime more as a source of calcium, not as a soil amendment, just trying to give the crop some additional calcium to, to get through the growing season, kind of like a Band-Aid, like Ryan was saying. There's other guys that have been using it a lot longer than I have that might have better experiences with it and stuff. But pellet lime can be expensive. Then the other one that we looked into was sugar beet lime. And we could get that hauled from Sydney, Montana. And there's, you know, an expense with that. And we ended up buying a spreader that was capable of spreading both fertilizers in general, as well as regular lime. And we're working with NDSU on figuring out how to actually calibrate it and get that all squared away. So we're doing it right. So there's freight in the beet lime. And then the other one that uh, we looked into was water treatment lime. And water treatment ha lime has the word water in it, so it's wet. So you have to let it sit for like a year or you have to turn it. And there's another producer in our area at the same time we were working with the water treatment plant. He was as well. And he's been working with them to haul it. So I could basically call him and he could bring it to me. So it's readily available, but I have to let it sit for a year to dry. And, and he's spread a whole lot this year. So I'm kind of curious to see how his all turns out and stuff. But this spring, after we had our water treatment line sit for a year, we filled our spreader up and uh, just went into like our cow yard where it was bare ground, you know, because we were done calving and stuff for the year and uh, just set that like a 2000 pounds and turned it on and see what happens. After we did that, I called Ryan as well as Chris Augustine, and they came out 
and uh, looked at it just to see, you know, am I doing this right or what's going on here, you know? And and they thought that it was looked good. Like we'll be able to figure out how to actually calibrate this and get the right rates we want. So that that's kind of where our next step is for the pH. We want to try both beet lime and water treatment lime, maybe not like in the same field, but on different fields and, and variable rated for certain zones and other fields do the whole fields. And we're also going to do some uh, more pellet lime trials. Maybe as a soil amendment, do higher rates. I know guys that are going as high as 700 to like 1400 pounds, but that's kind of hard on the check. Mm. So those are some examples there of what can be done to raise that pH back up. But how much can we reasonably expect to increase the pH by applying lime? Right. So part of that has to do with the soil type and if they're able to incorporate it. But uh, we've been doing some work, uh, Chris Augustine and I. So Chris used to be a soil health specialist up in Minot. Now he's the director here at the Dickinson Research Center. And we've done some trials with soil applied lime at rates from, we tried a couple hundred pounds. You don't really see much with that, but we're looking at one ton, two ton, three ton, four tons of lime. And we saw after the first year, some change in that top two inches, but you know, with that surface supply lime, it's going to take some time to work its way down. So a large part of that also depends on where that acidity is based on where they've been putting their nitrogen. So if you're putting anhydrous down, it's a little bit deeper. That acidic zone might be six inches down. That might take some time to change without any incorporation event. But we figure two tons uh, just based off of, you know, some preliminary research that we've done, two tons should be enough to get you above that 5.5 with the surface applied application uh, if you're down in the you know lower fives upper fours i have seen some stuff that's at like 3.9 and uh you need to make sure that you're thinking about how fine is that lime because the the particle size is going to be an important part of it too you know how well is that going to infiltrate into your soil uh, it's not going to be a quick fix we just really started this research not that long ago so we want to track this over time to see how often do you need to make this application? Is this a once every 10 years thing? Is this a once every couple of years thing? Uh, we're leaning towards, you know, hopefully it lasts a little longer. That way you can really take that cost and spread it out over time. We're still doing the research to really find those answers. So as you're hearing, Lime is really the best bet in most situations. Uh, we'll talk about a few other ideas in a moment. But first, I think it's important to address what can be done proactively to avoid making the problem worse. Uh, in other words, what changes can a farmer make to stop making their soils more acidic over time? Right. So nitrogen use efficiency uh, is a really fun term to talk about for me. So making sure that you're getting uh, the right amount of nitrogen in the right place at the right time, making sure that you're not putting too much nitrogen down. Uh, Nathan, I believe you've actually been starting to kind of do this, right? Reducing yep. the amount of nitrogen you're putting down up front. And yeah, then, we're putting... Yeah way way less down than i mean not like half as much but i mean i don't know you know like the standard was uh you know for every one pound or for yield or i don't i don't even remember what what the standard is on certain crops i know we're way way below that and dave franzen with ndsu we've really gotten away from the yield-based nitrogen goals and looking more at the economic rate and there's definitely some some play in that recommendation but uh, especially with no-till, and even when you're starting to get some of these higher organic matter 
areas, you can really reduce that rate. And then like a year like this year where we had no rain through June, right? I mean, how much of that nitrogen actually got used? So by putting down less up front, you can always come back later. Soybeans, uh, peas, you know, all these legumes, uh, any type of nitrogen is going to acidify the soil. But the nitrogen from legumes is going to do it a lot slower than putting down a high rate of nitrogen. So adding more legumes in the rotation, the problem is those legumes don't grow well if you have a low pH. So it's kind of a snowball effect, uh, especially when you don't really know what the issue is. So guys are putting more nitrogen down to try to fix the low yields and it can really get out of control. So trying to reduce the amount of, especially in hydrosomonia that you're putting down, making sure that maybe switching up your timing a little bit, uh, just trying to be more effective with that nitrogen rate. And then while you're, yeah, I, or go ahead. No, I was going to say, I personally think that people should try to get in their mindset that they need to go scout for pH, which might be a new concept. I mean, on our operation, we have two uh, pH testers. One is a real simple, like, garden one stick in the ground. And then the other one is where you have to actually mix a water uh, and soil solution to see what it is. But, like, the first year we put soybeans in, you know, we double inoculated them. And we put them on our quote-unquote best fields. And by best field, I mean flattest. And... uh Throughout the growing season, we'd go scout it because it's a new crop. You know, if you looked at it, it was probably a little more intensive than other crops. And we would dig the plant up, and there were like built to no nodules. And like Ryan just said, that, that can be a telltale sign that you have low pH. Well, and I knew from our years of soil sampling it that that field does have like an average pH of around like five. But if I would have had my tester with me, I could have just checked it. So, like this year, we had a uh, wheat field that was yellowing well was that disease was that you know nitrogen that was leaching or was it ph so when we went to go scout it i just went out up the thing in the ground and it was around like five and a half so i didn't have to check it with my uh, other one because i knew that was good enough you know i mean it's not great but it's still where i can still grow a decent crop so then i knew right away that ph wasn't my issue we went and top dressed the wheat to fix that issue. It's just something that I think people need to get in their head because it is more of a concern than, than people actually think. I've heard lots of stories of people that have yellow wheat and they think, oh, I need to put more nitrogen on. Well, actually, all you're doing was hurting your soil even more because you actually had too low of pH. If you would have factored that in right away, maybe you wouldn't have had that yellowing. And, uh, the type of pH meter that you use, definitely do your research into it. Uh, Nathan, I, I kind of have a, a pretty nice one that I use for research. And I also kind of help use it as a diagnostic tool if I'm going out to a field. But uh, we kind of compared the ones that Nathan had to mine. And one of them wasn't too accurate, but one of them was pretty close. And uh, I think it's going to be hard to find an accurate one below 40 bucks, especially having something that you can calibrate too. That's uh, a good key. But uh you know, if you can get one where you can just kind of take a, a little measuring spoon out with you, take a, a scoop of soil, take a scoop of distilled water, put it in a cup, mix it up real good, throw your pH meter in there, and within a couple minutes, you know your pH for that soil. So Now, in some of the soil problems we discuss on this show, part of the solution might end up being just to not farm a particularly bad spot and let it, quote unquote, heal over time. But pH is not that way. It's a chemistry issue, and uh, 
the best way to do that is you know you need some kind of carbonates in there and uh the best way to do that's with lime you know there's some work out there with you know like burning and that kind of stuff but that's more in forestry type situations so maybe if you have a tree row that is dead or something like that maybe burn some trees out there i still need to do more research into that but uh lime is your best option because without lime you're not actually changing that soil chemistry and uh the only thing you can really do without lime is slow the progress of, of the acidification. You know, there are some grasses that can handle more acidic environments. So if, if that's an option, that might be a lot cheaper. But uh, I haven't heard of anyone just letting it go. I've heard of some guys going to the extreme where they're going to bring back the plow so they can bring that subsoil moisture back up on top and kind of mix it in. But they're going to lose every benefit they've ever had from doing no-till. So I, I actually think it would be a negative impact, but that's just my personal opinion. But I know of guys who attempted to do that on real small acres, talked about doing it just so that they can try to make a quick fix of pH. But if they don't change the way that they're farming or if they don't incorporate lime or somehow, it's only going to happen again. Our pH didn't get this low overnight. I mean, it took a long time. So it's probably going to take us a long time to get it correct. Right. And so like mixing the, you know, the subsoil up with the topsoil, all you're really doing is diluting that pH. So you're not actually fixing it. If you are putting lime down, you know, that works, but you are losing those benefits where in a year like this, where we had a drought for a period, uh, you could definitely see the, the differences. You know, last year we were so wet, there were some people working residue, that kind of stuff. And, you know, tillage is a tool that sometimes needs to be used. But you need to make sure that you know what comes with that. You know, there's pros and cons to everything out there. And uh, there's some pretty heavy negatives in our drier environment to one tillage pass. So just assess your risk level. And uh, if you're going out tilling just to try to mix up the soil, why not put some lime down with it? You know, it's uh, it seems like a waste of an opportunity. I know of other guys who've... Uh spread lime and kind of cross with like a vertical tiller. And that's something that we kind of might want to try in the future and stuff too. But they haven't really seen a huge uh, response to that because it might not be enough tillage in a way. So I, I don't know if, if just leaving it sit, you'll have the same result or not. But, you know, we're, we're going to start doing some of our own on-farm studies and research on that once we start spreading lime. Spread the lime and make one or two passes of vertical tiller and leave some others, you know, or even, you know, work it in with the vertical tiller and spread some, you know, pellet line with it as well to see if that's just another source of calcium that'll help maybe affect the pH or end or yield. And uh, we actually got a grant. Uh, so it's Larry Sahachek from main campus is the lead on this. And it's me, him, Chris Augustine and Doug Lamblum. We want to see if, you know, incorporation of cover crops and livestock can help, you know, that hoof action can it actually work the lime in. Uh, so, you know, out this way, when you're putting a, a research product together, especially one with livestock, you make sure that's a guy that has livestock as well as this low pH issue. And uh, so we actually partnered up with Nathan. That project should be starting next year if everything goes to plan. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of incorporation when you start to think outside the box a little bit. And now we got to find out, does that work? I'm actually uh, pretty excited about it because they are 
looking at it as a cropping side and a cattle side, you know, with the livestock. And uh, I, I remember we went to a meeting one time and uh, Beck was there. We asked him about how could you break up a field without using tillage? And he gave an example of about like a million square foot pounds of cattle on it, you know, because they're hoof action and stuff. So when Ryan presented this idea of using the cover crops and incorporating cattle to work the lime in, I was sold right away. Like, I mean, yeah, if we put too many cows on there, we might have some compaction issues uh, later on. But but I actually think their hoof action and then them, you know, peeing on it and stuff, that's going to help get it in faster. It just makes complete sense to me. I don't know. Other people might think I'm nuts, but I was sold right away. This idea of utilizing cattle to work the lime into the soil, I think, is a pretty cool concept. Ryan had alluded earlier to the fact that there are some other ideas out there related to managing pH that he'd like to explore further. I asked if, before we wrap up this episode, he could just share a few of those ideas. Yeah, uh, I think the most kind of mainstream one is phosphorus. So putting phosphorus in furrow works with small grains. It ties up the aluminum. Uh, There's a study out of Montana that's really good. And they were looking at these different rates of phosphorus in furrow with durum. And this was in an acidic field. And they saw, I think it was around 60, 40 to 60 pounds of, of phosphorus per acre yielded fairly close to that uh, limed field where they put five tons down and brought the pH up to six. So, and they were incorporating the lime in the study. But, uh, you know, if you're able to avoid incorporation and still get the same yield as a neutral pH soil, with these small grains, applying that phosphorus in furrow, I think is a great tool to get you by, especially maybe you put some surface applied lime down, you're waiting for it to do its job put a little bit of phosphorus in that furrow to help tie up the aluminum. And from talking to some agronomists and then doing a little bit more research into it, so gypsum isn't going to change the soil pH, but gypsum, you are able to tie up some of that aluminum, so you're not going to see aluminum toxicity. So I need to look more into that one still, but that might be an option for some of these crops where you you can't really put phosphorus in furrow with soybean. And I did a trial with that this past year just to kind of see what would happen. And as expected, we saw stand loss, which didn't really help with the yields. You know, soybeans can be pretty flexible, but when you have a drought for most of the season, the soybeans really recovered in the late summer, but early on they looked dead. (laughs) So so that stand loss really hurt us. So phosphorus and furrow with small grains is a great way to kind of get by. And I didn't really see much difference with lime and furrow at like 100 pounds. But it made me start to think because, you know, there was some visible differences. Are, are there other issues we're seeing? You know, is there a calcium deficiency out there? That kind of stuff. So those are questions I still kind of have that I'm working on. But there are some options to kind of get you by. But lime is really your best bet. I do want to look into some things like burning and maybe biochar. But there is some research out there. You know, does that stuff, is that going to work out here? Uh, we have to find out. But yeah, so variety and species testing is another thing that I've really been looking at, uh, making sure that you're putting the right species down. Through some preliminary potted trials, it looks like TEF actually does pretty good in low pH. So uh, some of these warmer season grasses can handle it fairly well, as well as things like oats. But you look at things like durum, barley, they really can't handle these low pH environments. 
What a cool episode on a topic I, for one, didn't know much about. Thanks so much to Brad Farrell for asking the question and to Nathan Thomas and Ryan Beto for sharing those experiences. I think an episode like this would be really valuable for a lot of folks. And if you know someone who might want this information, go ahead and just text them the link to this episode. We really appreciate those of you who spread the word about this podcast. Thanks also to the sponsors of Season 3 of Soil Sense, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Barley Council, and the North Harvest Dry Bean Association. Hey, don't forget to register for the Dirt Workshop. Like previous years, the event will be full of innovative practices in soil health, research guiding management recommendations, and technology available to support on-farm applications. I'm going to be co-hosting the virtual event along with Dr. Abby Wick. We'll be live from Fargo, and I can tell you that Abby is finding ways to make this event even more valuable in a virtual setting. It's December 8th and 9th. Make sure you register at dirtworkshopnd.com. If you want more information about any of the topics discussed on this podcast, check out our website, ndsoilsense.com. We'll see you at the Dirt Workshop, and in the meantime, we're excited to bring you another great episode next week. Next week.